Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My name is Terry Friedline and I'm an associate professor in the School of Social Work. My research focuses on banking and finance. So from the perspective of the social work profession, um, we often think about how the clients that we serve, typically people who are excluded and marginalized from services within our society, how they gain access to things like a bank account, which you really need for dignified participation in today's economy. And so as I was investigating this, you know, from that perspective, you know, I, I came to realize that there are a lot of ways in which banks and the financial system put barriers in place that make it more difficult for people to get access. And so the work that I've been doing for the last few years is about those barriers, um, what they are, who they impact, how they disparately impact black and brown and lower income white folks, uh, and what we can do to remove them or at the very least lower them. So one of the things that I was working on with colleagues in the spring around March and April, um, when the coronavirus was, you know, was just really spreading across the US, um, was to interview people, uh, tellers, branch managers, other bank employees about how they were, were responding to their customers. We interview bankers around the country. Um, we ask them what their customers were coming to, what kind of questions they had, what kind of financial difficulties they were having. Um, and what they were doing to respond. And, you know, we really found that they were recommending that their customers do things like if they need to pay bills, you know, why not just overdraft your account? You know, if, if you need some extra credit, you know, use overdraft as kind of like a, you know, a loan instead of going to a payday lender or to a check casher. And, you know, that places kind of like banking and finance in the position of a first responder um, to an emergency, you know, a public health emergency, a financial and economic emergency, and has a lot of implications. I mean, that's debt that customers have to pay back and it's expensive. And it also has implications for, you know, like banks track customers' account history. So banks will keep track of that. They can close accounts based on excessive overdrafts and they can report you to credit bureaus and other kind of um, account history monitoring systems that prevent you from then in the future going back and opening a bank account or getting some other type of service. So it has potentially, you know, long-term implications, especially for customers who are really financially struggling at this time. Well, I think one of the, you know, maybe expected but still surprising things is that, you know, banks are in a moment of crisis um, doubling down on the systems that they have always used and that have always, you know, been harmful to customers in different ways. Overdraft is a good example. And a lot of the ways that, that banks apply overdraft is discretionary. And, and we know that kind of like discretionary decision-making is a really slippery slope to discrimination. Um, so some of my past work has found that, you know, banks tend to charge higher overdraft fees higher costs and fees more generally when they have branches that are located in black and brown communities uh, relative to those branches in white communities. And so they're charging, likely charging their, their black and brown customers more for banking services. And they're, you know, they're also charging overdraft fees at higher rates. 
They're recommending now that their customers use overdraft as a way to pay bills when they need it. Um, and this, you know, puts the financial system um, kind of at the front lines um, of a coronavirus response where I think we really don't want it to be um, because this can really exacerbate the debt, the financial problems, and the kind of like the, the burden of individual responsibility for managing a crisis and surviving through one that they didn't create, um, which means that you know people are going to take up debt, owe banks back um, for being able to survive right now. Um, and, and that's a big, big problem. Now, I think the, the public engagement part is really crucial. I think, you know, people, people on the ground, people who are, you know, looking at their bank account and, and seeing overdraft fees or, you know, having been laid off, not having insurance, not being paid a fair hourly wage. I mean, I, I think people kind of know the, the financial constraints of their lives and how difficult that is. And I think that we often kind of in the US society forget that there's an institution or there are institutions that have helped to create that precarity. So, you know, I think people uh, have an awareness of the costs and fees of banking, um, especially in marginalized communities that are um, kind of used to being taken advantage of or marginalized or excluded from the financial system. And I think, you know, we often tend to internalize like there's something that I did wrong about this. And so my public engagement, you know, I hope one helps people to remember that, you know, you know, you could be doing everything right, everything that, you know, the, the books tell you is supposed to be the right decision and still have fees come out of nowhere or have a bank, you know, for example, a few years ago, the Wells Fargo scandals were on top of everyone's mind um, where because of their sales culture, they were, they were opening accounts without customers' knowledge and then charging fees on those accounts uh, for, for accounts customers didn't even know they owned. That, you know, to remember to look at the institutions that are creating some of this precarity and the financial difficulty for us. And then, you know, really to work, you know, with policymakers, with consumer advocacy groups um, to ensure that we have policies in place uh, that, that protect people from these very ways that, that institutions can exclude and marg marginalize folks. And I think, you know, time will tell kind of the paths, you know, we have many possible paths ahead of us and, and time will tell kind of which one we take, which ones we take and what that means for us. Um, at the moment, you know, we saw when the first, when the CARES Act came out and people received $1,200 stimulus checks, many of which were delayed, by the way, uh, for folks who might have needed that money most when they didn't have a bank account. But when those checks came out, uh, we saw, for example, a reduction in payday and auto title and other kind of higher cost, low quality loans. You know, so people were using kind of those stimulus checks to reduce reliance on, you know, really high cost loans, like a payday loan that has an average 400% interest rate. In the last month or two, we've seen that percentage tick back up. So, you know, stimulus money has worn off. The economy, you know, isn't, isn't getting any better. Um, I mean, maybe we can see some minor changes, but, you know, relatively and comparatively, 
to the Great Recession, um, we're you know still in a crisis, um, and people still have a lot of uncertainty. And we don't have a policy in place. We don't have a, we don't have another CARES Act. Um, we don't have a Heroes Act that is going to help people kind of meet their budgets. So I I expect as we see the crisis evolve. Um, that we will see bankers, creditors, debtors, payday lenders being at the front lines of this crisis and really exacerbating the debt that, that households and people are, are carrying to survive. It was a pattern that we saw after the Great Recession. This could be an opportunity to learn from that, uh, which is what we need to do really quickly um, to be able to prevent people from kind of spiraling into debt. There's a great line of research on what's called financialization. Um, and that's essentially like the rise of finance in everyday life and in the US economy. Um, so there's some great research here at the University of Michigan by Greta Krippner. There's some great, you know, a great new book called Divested, um, which is by Ken Hu Lin and Megan Neely. And, and that explores like the history of financialization or this rise in finance. And some of this work, you know, basically finds that finance now um, you know accounts for the you know a greater share of the US economy in terms of income growth than those things like globalization or advances in technology um, combined. So it's really growing and as a result kind of exacerbates economic inequality. So the Great Recession you know was a recession and and a downturn as a result of you know, in part, banks and lenders taking risky underwriting. You know, uh, they were allowed. You know, our policy decisions enabled them to kind of engage in in risky lending, to target. You know, especially Black and Brown folks and Black and Brown women in particular for subprime mortgages that you know had interest rates that would rise exponentially and then couldn't be repaid, even when they qualified. You know, for for a lower interest rate or a prime mortgage. So finance, particularly, we saw it in the Great Recession, and as part of this, you know, much longer trend, and we're seeing it today. You know, we're seeing it when hospitals, um, you know, have to lay off their employees, and you know, even threatening to close their doors um, because they're not able to profit, they're not able to bill insurance um, during the coronavirus. So it's definitely aiding to the to the economic dynamics we're seeing today. So the economic crisis is really, you know, racialized and gendered, which means that uh, we see differences across racial groups um, and we see differences across genders. Uh, so black and brown people, women, black and brown women, um, especially are, for example, they're, they're at the front lines of the public health crisis. So a pretty high percentage of nurses, public health workers, are black and brown women who earn, you know, around thirty or forty thousand dollars a year, you know, deemed essential workers, at risk of becoming infected with the coronavirus, at risk of being laid off when their hospital isn't profiting during this time, and then, you know, not having money or or resources to pay bills. After the Great Recession, we saw that um, that women lost. A substantial amount of wealth from home ownership in the last recession, and and we can expect that some of that might be repeated. Um, 
we can see, you know, private equity or kind of Wall Street landlords, corporate landlords uh, coming in in a foreclosure crisis, kind of sweep out wealth um, that's been accumulated from home ownership. You know, so as people aren't able to pay their bills, their homes are being foreclosed, um, they're being evicted and removed from those homes and repossessed by banks. Um, that's a place where, you know, private equity firms can come in and, and purchase those properties. Uh, which takes you know, wealth away from the people who own them. And, and disproportionately, um, it's black and brown homeowners and women that are impacted uh, by these types of crises in that way. Well, you know, one thing I think pe people should take away is that, you know, while there are some of these barriers or, or some of these kind of predatory policies, um, their policies, their decisions that were made and that we can change. So, we can change the ways in which you know banks charge overdraft. Um, we can change the ways in which they charge fees for their products and services. Uh, we can deliver policies that provide the economic stimulus, the relief that people need during this time of crisis. Um, so those are decisions, they're choices, and we can change them. And the second thing is that you know, we can change them through policy, but we can also change them through people-led movements. And I think the, the protests and the protests for Black lives that we've seen kind of emerging after the, the killing of George Floyd is that, you know, people together uh, have power to make change. And that is something that we can apply to the financial system as well. And my book kind of follows that same thing about how people-led movements can bring forth a financial system revolution. We hear a lot about technology and the possibilities for technology to kind of revolutionize finance. And you know, the book that I have coming out says that that's not the type of revolution we need. I mean, there's lots of other um, problems with the financial system, uh, some of which you know we've just talked about, and technology isn't going to change those things. Um, it, in fact, it may actually speed them up and you know, make them happen more quickly and more kind of perniciously. So in the book, I walk through you know, different things like the ways in which um, payday lenders and banks work together. You know, so payday lenders get their financing from banks. They have to have a cooperative relationship. They operate in different geographic spaces. Um, they, in, in other words, they choose to open their locations in different neighborhoods, you know, but they still have this kind of like back end coordination happening. We see the rise in student loan debt and, you know, rising tuition costs and the inability or the unwillingness of a, of a Department of Education to forgive debt, um, especially uh, debt from predatory private colleges, you know, that, that advertised job placements rates of 90% when in fact job placement rates for their degrees were zero, but charged higher than the cost of admission, you know, at, at Harvard to attend, which is debt that, you know, they have been litigate, litigating against to have forgiven. And, and the, the department hasn't, hasn't chosen to do that. Um, and, and that's a relationship between, you know, higher education and finance, but technology is not going to change. Um, technology isn't going to change uh, the relationship, you know, between
banks and payday lenders for the good of the consumer. We also see, you know, not everyone has internet access. We know this now. I mean, I, I have been talking about this for years, but we know it now in a different way during a pandemic when we're all forced to work from home and realize that we don't all have the technologies that we need to, you know, go to school, go to work, do our jobs, um, order groceries online, stream Netflix, the things that we need to do now that we're at home. Um, and technology is not going to change the digital divide. And we're going to see kind of like a convergence of, you know, the digital divide, people, you know, without internet access, um, without, you know, maybe without cell phone service, right up against people, you know, who don't have enough money to pay their bills or to maintain a checking account, um, given the costs and fees that banks charge for those products. Um, and, and so technology, as branches might close as a result of this pandemic and, and pull those kind of brick and mortar structures out of communities, uh, you know, we may see a widening of those divides instead of a, instead of a closing. So my book is, it's titled Banking on a Revolution, Why Technology, Financial Technology Can't Save Our Broken System. Um, you know, walks through some of these things and concludes by saying that, you know, people-led movements, the ability to, to protest and to, you know, force change on a financial system, recognizing the work that Black Lives Matter has done, that Occupy Wall Street has done, that the civil rights movement did and, and the Black Panther Party did, putting forward economic justice as important goals and platforms, um, that, that this is where you know the type of financial system change that we need will come from. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.